In their friendly environment, chimp groups live in harmony, and what appears to be a violent quarrel is in reality violent play. When a wild chimpanzee strips the leaves from a twig and then sticks that twig into a termite hole in order to draw out the termites, he is not only using a tool, he has made one. In the evolution of primates, it is said that with the making of tools, early man began. The apes are related to man, but they are not the group man emerged from. In the history of primate evolution, which began 70 million years ago, man represents a relatively recent and unique development. It was in Africa, about two million years ago, that earliest known man emerged. And over the course of the centuries, from Zinjanthropus through Neanderthal to Cro-Magnon and man today, the most remarkable and significant thing about him has been the phenomenal growth of his brain. Lancelot Lean, Secret Chimp. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. It's 2001, A Space Policy. This is Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. We record a little bit ahead of our release date, so uh, since our last recording, we've gotten a response from a listener who uh, is letting us know that the three stars in Orion's belt are well recognized in Brazil as the Tres Marias, the Three Marys. So not just in the northern west hemisphere is it recognized as as well as it's as it is in, in south america as well so thank you for our listener for pointing that out to us and we want to hear feedback from you at any time on all of the things we talk about just uh shoot us an email at spacepodicy2001 at gmail.com or tweet us at spacepodicy or find us on facebook at Space Policy, 2001 A Space Policy Facebook page. Any of those ways that you'd like to get in touch with us, please do, because we'd like to interact with you, read it out on the show, and have a conversation. Hi. Good morning, sir. Morning. And I see you again. I was watching um, an ancient Egyptian engineering documentary. And, and to be clear, this is about human, ancient human engineering, not... Uh, about alien intervention a hundred yeah a hundred percent just so our listeners know <clears throat> these are made by the the fleshy uh blood bagged uh humanoids that you know and love not not <laughs> any kind of ultra futuristic and technologically advanced species that levitated pyramids down to the ground no we didn't do that right uh, so uh, they're working out that all of these ancient civilizations had very sophisticated access to mathematics, including um, things like geometry and algebra. Um, and by using these together, they used a lot of trigonometry as well. Uh, what they found was the accuracy at which they had done so with these pyramids of Giza, they were just a, a small degree of error 
completely aligned with the Orion's Belt constellation. That is so bizarre. And there's other megalithic structures scattered throughout Egypt that correlate with different constellations. The tall spires that you see dominating a lot of the temples and spiritual sites uh, Mm. that are called obelisks, they are a lot of the time used as um, like a sundial. And Mm. maybe not necessarily to tell current time, but they mark very important season changes, maybe like uh, equinox and uh, mm. one of the big ones was the coming of the flooding of the Nile River, which was greatly anticipated. And, you know, instead of having a, a, a direct calendar to kind of look at, they were using stars and the architecture reflected the maps of their stars. Mm. And similar to the way that um, Stonehenge seems to be laid out yes. ritualistically, depending on certain festival, pagan festivals of the year where the shadows would fall in that circle. A hundred percent. These are uh, monuments made to uh, all kinds of cosmic phenomena. Mm. Which then represent important phases of the year and important periods like harvest time and rituals, hunting season. Mm -hmm. Hmm. There are several temples too that during sacrificial periods or again like you were saying you know maybe maybe times of um, uh, spiritual point of the civilization they coincide with like lunar eclipses solar eclipses Uh, some of the temples even use the position of the sun to illuminate parts of the temple that are um, you know always dark so they they've created these perfect shafts the the stone shafts that lead outside are are carved just in a way to where that one day, uh, usually just for like an hour or two, uh, the sun's shining directly through and illuminating. I think even in the pyramids and some of the burial chambers, you can find these. That brings that just kind of is one of those things, I guess, that opens up more questions than it answers. Truly, because we're already having to guess. I mean. We've only known how to translate, roughly translate hieroglyphs um, for maybe a, what a, since with the Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone. Stone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we were just guessing at pictographs before that, and even with that, I mean, a lot of the pi- uh, papyrus scrolls that uh, were used as ledgers, you know, those were lost to uh, weathering mm. and, and just general damage and. Uh, the the sacking of Egypt from the Sea Peoples. I mean, there there the list goes on. Incredible that we have as much as we do, like in so many ancient civilizations. Arthur, in one of your earlier books, you indicated uh, that people are space conscious but not space minded. What is the distinction? So you know, the exploration of the universe is much more than a contest between two mid twentieth century powers. It's really the next stage in the evolution of mankind. I'm sure that the men who built the first boats out of reeds and logs uh, never imagined the ocean-going commerce of today or the uh, great nations beyond the sea. And similarly, the men who started the conquest of the air only a lifetime ago couldn't have conceived of the great jets that are now roaring through the skies. Well, what we're starting now with our drive into space is the next step in evolution.
when the Donna Mann sequence came and and they, they're battling over, you know, who's supposed to be at the water hole and one group one fights off the other and force them to leave and they lose the battle. And later, the alien force that, that moves throughout the uh, solar system in this story comes and drops a monolith. And this one group that is defeated at the water hole is exposed to the monolith and it alters his thinking. The monolith is essentially a teaching machine. In fact, our original idea was to have something with a transparent screen on which images would appear, which would, you know, teach the apes, you know, what we, you know, how to fight each other, how to maybe even make fire. But that was much too naive an idea. So eventually we sort of bypassed it and just a device which we didn't explain, but it affected their minds directly, you know, when they, they touched it and things happened to their brains and they were transformed. The monolith was a kind of a teaching machine, that these early apes would put their hands up against the monolith and somehow mysteriously uh, understand that they had an option other than a strictly vegetarian diet that they could kill. So the film 2001 A Space Odyssey begins with the dawn of man and the birth of civilization. When our human ancestors discovered fire, learned to make tools, learned to use those tools in violence. The story is primarily of Moon Watcher, who's the, the son of the old man, as it's noted in the book. But we see him succeed his, and take over his father's footsteps and begin the process of leading his tribe to food and water and shelter, only to be challenged by another alpha male within his own tribe, One Ear. And it's during this battle for authority, for control, Braid? that Moon Watcher, in his anger, picks up the bone and uses it uh -oh. as a weapon and beats One Ear to death in anger. And like Cain discovering that he had killed Abel, Moon Watcher discovers that with enough force and violent power with a weapon, he discovers he can then kill his opponent and control the tribe. All of this takes place after they have discovered the obelisk. In the film, it is portrayed almost as if the obelisk in its mysterious presence is, is transmitting knowledge to an electrical frequency. And it's only after exposure to the monolith that Moon Watcher discovers the violence and the, the original sin that allows humans to evolve. Man's history is but a moment that from, from the first second that, uh, that the first weapon is found, the weapon that is the tool, okay, that is the work of art, all these things were uh, forced forward by male testosterone and by a kind of homicidal impulse to create um, and, to, and, you know, and to kill. Things that we manufactured or we made, the most things that we ever made was uh, we would make, uh, take a piece of wood, see, and rub it and, and rub it and clean it and look at it and hit earth with it and hit a tree with it. For what purpose? Just to keep busy. There was nothing. To do. <laughs> there was absolutely nothing to do. We had no jobs, don't you? What see? other jobs were there? <laughs> There must have been something else beside hitting a tree with a no, piece of stick. That, well, hitting a tree with a piece of stick was already a good job. <laughs> you couldn't get that job, you know? What job? Mainly was sitting and looking in the sky was a big job. 
And another job was watching each other was one thing. That was lifelike, looking at each other. The apes in this sequence were designed to be our earliest known ape ancestors. The missing link was still a common catchphrase at the time. Uh, up uh, through the 80s, it was really, am I not mistaken, only in the 90s that we really stopped using the term missing link after Lucy, right? When we found out that there were several branches of hominins that you know had either gone extinct or never had a, a fruitful evolution afterwards so uh, it was kind of no longer a singular you know we weren't just one step away from discovering man's previous ancestor it mm -hmm. became much more complicated than that and uh, the the white whale, so to speak, finally uh, that that mythos dissolved after we discovered all these different like the um, the the giants from India that were essentially sequestered into their own villages. They they weren't allowed to intermingle with the other hominins at the time, and they they did not have a successful evolution and died out. And it's through intermingling that our ancestors were able to survive. What's commonly brought up is the fact that the competition for resources between tribes and between species was so much more fierce than we could even imagine during the Stone Age and the Pleistocene era, where life was so much harsher than we can even imagine now with fluctuations of temperature and climate much more rash than we're currently even seeing with our own human climate change debacle. So the fact that our ancestors did interbreed among species is something that's really more of an anomaly than a norm. Corollaries from the animal kingdom, and I believe it's a type of spadefoot frog, uh, and what it can do is it can choose to interbreed with another species if it, if it wants to, to protect its spawn. Um, so as its tadpoles are developing, it's fighting against the inevitable drying up of the water source that they've been laid into. It, they, they typically don't have um, territories where there's um, you know a, a, an infinite water supply or something that with a freshwater course they're they're really fighting against time and what can happen if they don't uh, progress in time is the tadpoles and all of that kind of gelatin like substance and all of the proteins they'll just congeal and I think unfortunately they call it um, Oh, goodness gracious. I think it's called like uh, tadpole brittle, which is a very it's that's a, that's a, a grotesque and um, horrific thing to have to to classify as a scientist. But yes, it simply just dries up and um, none of those creatures are viable after that. Now, it's a delicacy in the Everglades. <laughs> if that frog knows that the pond is drying up faster than uh, what would be needed for its spawn to uh, fully develop. It will interspecies link with another type of spadefoot frog, um, same family, but it is a, it's a completely different frog with a completely different call. They don't even sound the same. Uh, the, the original one I was speaking to has kind of like a chirping uh, bird-like sound where this one has more of like a croaky you know, traditional frog wow. sound. So they actually know uh, what they sound like and can use them to spawn. And to uh, the whole purpose of doing so is because they know 
the spawn with that other frog species will develop faster and will be able to escape the pond before it dries up. Whoa. It's like the cowbird of amphibians. <laughs> um, so, yeah, d- it, there's definitely a lot of benefits to interspecies. Any kind of broadening of the genomic sequence, that's yeah. going to give you protection against different types of diseases and genetic disorders. Um, well, uh, you see, it was very fragmented. Fragments, yes. If it wasn't nations. Yes. It was caves. Yes. Each cave <laughs> was a nation. Each cave had a national anthem. Yes. Well, do you remember the national anthem of your cave? I certainly do. I'll never forget. You don't forget a national anthem in a minute. Let me hear it, sir. Let them all go to hell except Cave 76. <laughs> That leads me to an interesting thing about food competition. So it was it was up to five hundred thousand years ago that Homo erectus and Neanderthal yes. branched off. Yes, and you know with that timeline, we can only assume that there was direct competition for resources, and that the interbreeding was done at watering holes or at meetings at food sources and things like that. Well, we didn't stand a chance on brutality against the Neanderthals in terms of brutality. They were stocky, they were short, and they were nothing but muscle. They would break open the bones and suck out the marrow. Um, it was it was really the internal fats that were, um, that were sustaining them mm-hmm. more than the meats, simply because of their nomadic lifestyle in fierce and harsh weather conditions. It's also why we believe that they were using pellets, even though we haven't found evidence of them using animal skin, because they were not that much more acclimatized to extreme weather conditions than we were. So for them to for them to have survived in the extreme conditions where we found them in groups of varying ages, they would have had to have had some kind of clothing. Certainly, they were having micro ice ages that were natural in some degrees and some of them were caused by meteoric or volcanic uh, Mm. interactions so anytime that giant clouds of dust start blocking out the sun you get these periods of of long harsh cold winters and very little production from vegetation which inherently runs up the food chain taking down uh you know the these early humans probably subsisted mostly on mammalian and uh, they were they were eating meat. They were eating meat. Sir, what great inventors or discoverers you feel our civilization is, is most beholden to? People like Pasteur come to my mind, Columbus, he Einstein. Good. He was good. Who do you feel was they one of the great good. contributors to our civilization as we know it today? Jewish or anybody? Anybody. Anybody. <laughs> you left out Murray. Murray? Murray was a terrible, a hell of an inventor, one of the big inventors. What did he invent? Fire. Really? Fire. How did fire. that come about? How did he He was standing him? under a tree. Yes. And came a big bolt of lightning, set the tree on fire, and set Murray's beard and his clothes and his hair on fire. And he came running into the cave all on fire. And I jumped up. I, I remember I leapt to my feet. And I said, get your marshmallows on your sticks. Hurry! <laughs> Hurry! And then... We all rushed at Murray, but we were so greedy, we put him out. Yep. Oh, too many marshmallows. Too many marshmallows. Put out put Murray. Murray yeah. Well, he, it was a terrible well, experience. Well, you might have been unhappy, but I think Murray was probably but, happy But that about was the first he invented He fire. didn't invent it. Yeah, that was a very uh, big invention. 
Usually once the Neanderthal is endowed an animal, they would gather around it, eat the eyes, the tongue, the, you know, the fresh, juicy organs raw, and that... then they would take the carcass back mm. and, and cook it over fire. We also know that they were adept at using fire for shelter warmth as well by this point. And they not only were cooking their food, but they were curing it as well. The amount of sophistication we've seen in terms of food preparation for Neanderthals extends to shellfish. The fact that we have instances of Neanderthals with shrimp and mussels with them, mm -hmm. miles and miles and miles away from shore in, in, in other settlements, tells us that they had mastered the process of food preservation with seafood by wrapping it in seaweed. They discovered that by wrapping their shellfish in seaweed, it could preserve it for several more days. So mm -hmm. that on their nomadic trips inland, they would have a snack and a preserved meal with them to take along. Oh, that's a bag lunch. Exactly. Low country boil. I'm sure they had uh, dried meat similar to what we consider jerky. That's one thing that is, is assumed is that the the fire was also used for smoking and curing mm -hmm. the meat that was not used immediately. Before the divergence, yeah. like you said, you've got the kind of in-between cross of upright, nearly feral man to modern man. Mm -hmm. Our ancestors obviously had probably like thicker upper torsos, incredibly... Uh, strong neck and shoulder muscles. We're talking like heavy brow, thick shoulder, thick neck. Yeah. They they can bash, they can presumably probably cover good distances. They were taking on their prey with sophisticated tools in groups, but when the push came to shove and they were actually one-on-one, -on -one, they were tackling these beasts with their bare hands. Yeah. <laughs> wrestling them to the ground absolute roots proto-humans that are just brawny as hell yeah but the evolution basically says as we learn how to use these tools as we learn how to exist in society and be productive together our bodies may not need to be like this yes and you can imagine that something like that would have a incredibly high caloric toll yeah like you would need to be constantly eating yeah to keep your physique going but i imagine what eventually happens is with the evolution of tools comes the evolution mm -hmm. of man it becomes easier physically but they're using more intelligence and more uh, socio interplay when they're hunting, when they're mm -hmm. planning, you know, they're, they know the seasons change, certain things go away. They're not available. We have to A society work developed. together. Yeah. 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 And the, um, the inherent brute strength just becomes less and less important. And it's the degree to which the brute strength, is a part of their culture is something that we don't really know a lot of that has to do with our assumptions you don't know based on the records so far uh, what role men and women played with each other in terms of who was hunter gatherer who was staying at home it may not have been a strict delineation of tasks like 
I don't um, think it could the have patriarchal been. society began studying this automatically ascribed to it. And this is a society that had to work together. There's not much distinction between male and female in terms of bone density, mass, musculature. Sure. Yeah. And the other thing that, that complicates that issue for us in, in modern interpretation is to, to what degree did our modern society evolve from that which was there during these Paleolithic times? It's controversial, but there are a lot of us arguments based on the research that Neanderthals did have quite an advanced structure of culture and spirituality. I've heard by the that time they vanished. burials became a thing. Uh-huh. And burying people with flowers yes. was a thing. They discovered an abnormal amount of pollen at some of these Neanderthal burial sites, which leads them to conclude that there were flowers placed at the graves. So from those two details alone, you could at least assume to a small degree that mm -hmm. not only do they understand what death is now, but they may be like reverence for the dead is such a complex social structure. The, the fact that you recognize that an individual is no longer and you want to do something, it seems like a, it, it doesn't matter if it's out of respect or if it's simply out of just like tradition or, or what have you, but they felt the need to send their brethren off. And that is so advanced um, from, a, from a social perspective. We don't know to what degree their spirituality had evolved, but we do know that long before they disappeared as an entity, whether it be a separate species or a genome variation of Homo erectus, which is still up in the air, as I understand it to mm -hmm. me. Um, either way, what it shows is time, they were already burying significant items with their loved ones. The idea of burial upon death is already something which has been speculated upon a lot in the last several decades. But the consensus now is that it began as, as a sign of respect. Because every time you would leave the cave with your fellow hunters and leave those behind, what you did not want to come back to at the end of a hunting season is to see all of your family disemboweled with their organs trail all over the floor and a big pile of blood and rotting carcasses and maggots and flies all over the place where a bunch of saber-toothed tigers had ripped everyone to shreds. So the idea was that whoever was alive back at the cave while the hunters were away, if someone dies, bury them. Bury them now so that, A, you don't, you don't deface your beloved, but... More importantly, you're not attracting packs of scavengers there to consume the carcass and perhaps put the rest of the homestead in danger. So by burying the bodies, you're not only burying the scent and getting rid of possible predators and dangers to the homestead, but you're also preserving their respect so that we're seeing the beginnings of a, a, a sense of holy transference because the the hunters come back 
and their loved ones are no longer with us. They're buried, they're dead, they have passed on. And we see a sense of reverence, perhaps because of the fact that we're not brutal and short and nasty in existence as it is, we're, we're not quite as knee-deep in the, uh, the entrails of our loved ones <laughs> because that we've started a ritual to help the survival of the group, but also to help them preserve the memory of the previous generation of the group, which also engenders a, um, a sense of loyalty and tightness and storied shared history in memorializing its lost elders. Did you live before man believed in the Almighty? Oh yeah, a few years before before we believed. Well, did, did you believe in anything? Did you believe in any yeah, superior uh, being? Uh, yes, a guy Phil. <laughs> well, who was Phil? Who was Phil? Philip, the leader. Philip. The leader of our tribe. Philip. Philip. He was the leader. Oh, what yes. made him the leader? Very big, very strong, a big beard and big chest and big arms, and I mean, he could kill you. He could and, just and walk you, on you and you could die. You revered him. And we were, we prayed to him. You prayed. You wanted, would you like to hear one of our prayers? Oh, to I, Philip? I could. Do you remember these prayers? Oh, oh Philip. <laughs> Please don't take our eyes out and don't pinch us and don't hide us all. Oh, man. That yes. was it. And, uh, and Philip did these things for you? And yes. You, and you and followed Philip, him? Yeah, right. For, How long was his reign? Oh, a... not too long, not too long, because one day, Philip was hit by lightning. Ah. And we looked up, we said, there's something bigger than Phil. <laughs> yeah, like you said, and what's really crazy is they figured that out after probably some really bad accidents, you know. Right. Um, oops, yeah, we can't just leave dead yeah. people laying around, because... That's how you get ants. That's, that's where you get plagues. That's where you that's where you get pestilences. Maggots and flies breeding disease. You know, this is a reason why during the Crusades there was a big deal about whether or not to cremate the dead. Yeah. Among those who religiously believed that the dead should only be buried. buried. But but within the walls of a fortress, when you have uh, a certain number of uh, mass dead every day that you're lining the, the turret walls with you have to make a decision mm. and in so many cases these paleolithic decisions whether they were made from the gut or from logic hold up today because we discover over and over again that the same methods that our ancestors used for preserving life going back to ancient egypt you know Natron and the embalming process of mummification was 100% the basis for our modern chemical embalming process. And they had it down to such a science to where it was preserving the bodies perfectly, but it was still, I guess, not too caustic enough to work with to where uh, the embalmers, you know, were injured by it. And uh, did you know Cleopatra? Lovely woman. How old? Was she really 21 when she died? Get out of here, 21. What are you, not? How old was she? 86, a nice age. But why does history have it that she was 21? History, they, they, they cook it up. She didn't die from an ass either. What did she die? No, with? sir. You know, with the snake, with no. that nonsense. What was a it? Stroke. <laughs> not a stroke. A stroke. They rushed her to they rushed her to the hospital pyramid, you know, yes. and they pushed her around a little bit, and she said, "Well," and died. That was the last yes. words. Yeah. Do you hear that Russia is 
pulling out of the ISS mission. No, really? 2024, I think, they're officially done. On their own terms, they're they're pulling out. Can you believe that? That's nuts. In the face of everything that they're doing right now? Hmm. It's sad. It is sad. End of an era of cooperation. Well, that was, yeah, because we were just coming out of the Cold War and kind of as a show of you know, trust and um, progress. They can't. How long has it even been since Mir? It's been almost 20 years, right? Since that was a thing. Hmm. Maybe? Maybe not. I think it's been like 30 years wow. since Mir. It was in Leo from 86 to 2001. Okay. Wow. 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 Mir was cool. And Putin, of course, chest pounding. He's just like, we're going to put our own station up there. Yeah. Great. Great. Right. Um, those are going to be some catastrophic headlines once those come through. That's just such a uh, <laughs> rude gesture. You know, mm-hmm. that's just, there's scientists. Do you know the Russian yeah. scientists are upset about this probably? You've done a spectral analysis? Of course I have. And? And what? <laughs> Dr. Olive, I'm not taking a survey. If you've done the analysis, uh, what are the results? Nothing conclusive. All right. What's going on here? What do you mean? Well... I may not be the swiftest guy in the world, even when I'm not hungover, but I do seem to remember a process where you people ask me questions and I give you answers, and then I ask you questions and you give me answers, and that's the way we find out things. I think I read that in a manual somewhere. Your government wanted us to awaken you when we reported our findings. We did that. You're here to help us reactivate the Discovery and its computer systems because that is United States territory. You are authorized to observe other aspects of our mission. We have no other obligation. A lot has happened while you have been asleep. It is not our choice. This is a very bad business. Very bad. Ships, other planes buzzing around each other like angry hornets. Very bad. We didn't start it. We are scientists, you and I, Dr. Floyd. Our governments are enemies. We are not. Lancelot Link, secret chimp. He stands for justice, he has no fear. He's the agent to call when trouble is near. Lance Link, you gotta come through. Everybody is counting on you. From Clavius Base. This is Brent, and I'm Wes, signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
it'll be a really big show. 